0: When you hear a lecture, when you see a movie, there are certain things that are inferred in the text itself. It's called inference, and it's the thinking part of reading the book. If, if you get a book and it just spells out everything for you and doesn't mask anything for you to figure out, it's a boring book. We want to be engaged in our thinking. To give you a working definition of what inference is, it is... A conclusion reached on the basis of evidence and reasoning. A conclusion based on evidence and reasoning, that's what an inference is. It is deduction, it is conclusion, it is reasoning, it is conjecture, speculation, is the guess, presumption, assumption, supposition, reckoning, extrapolation it means to see something and figure out kind of what's going on i recently joined the gym out in callahan just yesterday and i was delighted to see a punching bag with gloves i came home to care and i said next time you and i get into argument i'm going to go down to the gym and i'm going to put those gloves on and i'm going to hit the bag several times and I'm not going to tell you what I'm thinking about as I'm hitting the bag. But she might infer what I might be thinking about as I'm hitting the bag. That's called inference. Yeah. To give you, a, a, to, to test you on how you might be doing, I want you to look at this cartoon. And that's a bowl with a piranha in it. There's a cat. And through that cartoon, you might infer certain things have happened. And you might infer that certain things will never happen again. Like that cat putting his two legs in the piranha bowl. That's the concept of inference. Now, if you were in the crowd with Jesus behind you, to be baptized of John the Baptist. You're in the crowd, you're in the line. And you heard the shuffling of feet behind, and you turned around and you saw this Jewish man, obviously from Galilee because of his wardrobe and his look. And you were to infer from that moment that this is just another sinning Jew that came to repent and be baptized. You would be dead wrong. In fact, if you were to look closer into his face, you would see something that's missing. You would see the anxiety of sin was not there. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan speculates when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, Campbell writes this, John, looking into his face, became conscious of absolute perfection and sinless spotlessness of this man. He was amazed and arrested. He felt as if he dare not lay his hands upon this man to immerse him in the waters of the Jordan. What a moment at the banks of the Jordan as Jesus stepped forward. So common, like all other Jews, that he wasn't recognized in the crowd as being anything other than another Jew. And yet to John, it was revealed his sinlessness, his spotlessness, and he was without words. In fact, it doesn't even give us any words in the text, just that he would not baptize him. So look with me down to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came. Well, the first three words need our observation. When you see the word then, it precedes something that happened before. Jesus came at a particular time. He came when John the Baptist had Finished his work. If you look back at chapter 3 in verse 3, you'll see the prophet Isaiah's statement. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Well, apparently in this moment, the paths have been made straight. The mountains have been leveled the way of the Lord has cleared out because Jesus never shows up early. He never shows up late. Then Jesus appeared right on time. Now some of you got saved when you were little children and some of you got saved just a year or two ago. Older in life. And I know the thought is always, I wish I'd gotten saved as a kid. But you know, Jesus showed up when he did. He showed up on purpose when he did. You weren't ready at 7 or 8 or 12. You were ready when you were 42 or 51 or 62. And he shows up, doesn't he? So Jesus appears at the very time John has fulfilled his ministry in the preparation of the king appearing. Well, what did Israel look like? Well, there was a heightened aware of sin. Crowds were coming out from the countryside and from Jerusalem, so much so that it caught the attention of the scribes and Pharisees. There was a heightened sense of the failure of religion, of sin, so much so that the Gospels in another place talk about the Roman soldiers coming to the baptism of John, asking, what do we do? To be right with God. There was an awareness of sin. And then Jesus shows up at the baptism. Notice it goes on in verse 13 and says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee 30 years. Almost 30 years of silence. 30 years in obscurity in the backwaters of nazareth a carpenter's son reeling year after year under the scandal of a birth to a woman who claimed to be become pregnant by god himself 30 years of silence 30 years of making tables and chairs of being the oldest 30 years. I find that astounding. Involved in the commonplace things of life. You know about 99% of our lives are commonplace. Jesus lived for 30 years. And out of that obscurity, here he appears. Notice, he came to the Jordan for a particular purpose. It wasn't to hear the sermon of John the Baptist. Neither was it to watch people get baptized. It says he came to John to be baptized by him. Why? If John's baptism was the baptism of repentance from sin, and if Jesus was sinless, and he was, why be baptized? No announcement was given by Christ before he stepped into the Jordan. He never turned to the crowd and said, Look, I don't need to do this. I'm not sinful. I'm the Son of God. Most who watched the baptism that day saw nothing unusual in this one man being baptized. You say, Well, the dove came down. The statement from heaven was given. None of those people saw that. Jesus saw it. John saw it. There is no evidence that anybody else witnessed any of that stuff. If you were standing there waiting your turn, all you saw was another Jew go down, come up wet, and walk off. So why was he baptized if he wasn't a sinner? What purpose could it possibly render in the economy of God? Well, let's read on. The answer's always in the text. You got a question about the Bible? Keep reading it. The answer's there. Notice, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Can you come to me? In this one statement of John, he totally abandons his whole ministry as ineffective. That's funny, strange. The baptism by water for repentance of sin, John says, it's not enough. I know it's not enough. I don't need, you don't need what I have, I need what you have. There's no life in water baptism, but there's a whole lot of life in spirit baptism. When the fire of God comes inside of somebody. You know, sometimes folks claim to get saved and then you see no result. I find that impossible. You will see something. When life comes in, John said, look, what I've got's not enough. I need you. So he's, he's blocking them from coming in the water. In Jesus' statement is the connection. In Jesus' statement is the answer to why he's there. Look at it with me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. Allow it. For thus it is fitting. You ready? For us. It is the right thing for me. It's the right thing for you. It is the right thing for us the sinless connecting with the sinful, John the Baptist. In this connection, Jesus said, all righteousness will be fulfilled. Notice he didn't say this is one step along the road to righteousness, but in me coming down and allowing you, a sinful man, to let me the precious, sinless one, down into these waters. I am connecting now with you, the sinner, forever sinful, and being brought up. And this fulfills, in my connection with you, all righteousness. Now follow the, follow the thought, and do not miss this. This is not one act in a line of acts of Jesus that he said, look, i got to just get through this thing. And then I go on to fulfill the rest of the ministry. He said, what you're seeing in my baptism is my connection with sinful man. Jesus, in effect, says, I am taking upon me the sin of the world when I go down. You know, they say the most powerful sense that we have is the sense of smell. You know? Uh, Odors can be offensive. They can be attractive. But they catch our attention. Some smells take us back 30 years. I always, when I come home from Wednesday nights, I smell like whatever I'm cooking. Or have cooked. You know, last Wednesday night I came home and smelled my flow my my clothes, it was a pancake. It was what it was. You ever let a kid go outside for a while? They got the stench of outside on them. And that there are beautiful odors that attract us. When Jesus was baptized, listen carefully. He took upon him my sin and your sin. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what was going on in the baptism. He was becoming at that moment my sin and your sin. This was not just an example that we should follow. In fact, it has nothing to do with Christian baptism. This isn't Christian baptism. This is the Son of God becoming sin for us. Now, there are a couple different locations in the Bible I want to show you in the New Testament and the Gospels where Jesus refers to baptism. Let's look at it together. The occasion of Mark's comments here are that several of the disciples had come, James and John, basically, to ask, can we sit with you in the kingdom that's coming? Notice, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. I want to sit in your right hand, your left hand. Jesus said, you don't even know what you're talking about. He said, because can you drink the cup that I drink of? Can you be, notice, baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, the disciples said yes, because in the disciples' minds, they were thinking of what baptism? John's baptism, the water thing. We know what baptism he was talking about. It was the baptism of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was the passion. It was the cross. It was his death. It was his burial. He was totally immersed in death. And he asked the men, can you do that? And they were clueless. I need you to see today that this water baptism was a foreshadowing and an embracement of the baptism that would take place three years from this point. It was an embracing of a vocation. It was a nodding of the yes to the Father that he would go through that for us. At this point, the 30 years... We're culminated now in his accepting of the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, when we sing worship, we sing of these truths. This is the stuff that drives our souls. When Caleb leads, he's not leading you in notes and chords and words. He's preaching truth to you, and that truth in you echoes back to God as you sing. Notice a next phrase. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, I'll quote it for you. He said, Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would it that were already kindled. And then he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Eyes toward the cross, I am fixed on the baptism of the cross of Jesus Christ, his own cross. So a reference in Isaiah 53 said he was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. into your soul, he was numbered among us. He became one of those common Jews on that side of that hill, and then he became one of us to pay for our sins. See the power of this moment? See the decision he made? Look with me down at verse 15. It said, then he consented. John baptized Jesus. Now. One more verse, Isaiah 53:11. It says, "Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities." What knowledge is he referring to, the knowledge of sin? the knowledge of what it is to be one of them, one of us, the knowledge of pain, the knowledge of heartache, the knowledge of sin itself. Look with me down to verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the waters and behold, the heavens were open to him And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Notice, he saw. And coming to rest on him. Now, do not think at this moment that this is when the Spirit showed up and filled Christ. Uh, From his mother's womb, Christ was filled with the Spirit of God. This is when the Spirit of God came down in empowerment. For the mission of the cross, he comes down as a gentle, unassuming dove. And then verse 17, notice it rests upon him. Verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. For 30 years, he lived a sinless life. How do we know that? There's no record of those 30 years. You know, it, it might interest you to know that in the first couple centuries, there were books written, and one of them was called the Gospel of Barnabas, in that when Jesus was... A small boy, he did certain things, and those certain things that he did could be considered sinful. We have no record of his, all these 30 years, but let me tell you how you know he's sinless and was sinless, because when God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, there is your stamp of sinlessness. If God declares you sinless, you are sinless. And he declared his son sinless. But there's something else in this statement. It's not just the father looking back over the life of Jesus Christ for these 30 years and and no sin. Not in his thought, not in his action, not in his motives, nothing. It is also the father looking forward to what he was going to do on the cross seeing that he embraced the sin of mankind and going down in baptism, being immersed in my sin and your sin. Let's look at that Isaiah 53 one more time. Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, whose soul? Christ. For eternity past, God felt no anguish. But here Christ experiences your anguish and mine. Out of the anguish of his soul, of Christ's soul, he, the Father, shall see and be satisfied. Notice, by his knowledge, by the knowledge of Christ, by the knowledge of the Father, by his knowledge of sin itself, The only way he can make us justified. That he shall, notice by his knowledge, shall the righteous, the one my servant, make many to be counted righteous. That's us. Isn't that beautiful? He gives to our account his righteousness because he took upon our sin and this was the moment that it happened. That he became sin for us wasn't on the cross. He had walked with this for three years in public ministry. So why was Jesus baptized? Two reasons. Two reasons. Don't forget this. Number one, it is to identify himself with us. See, the smell of sin wasn't just on his clothes. The smell of sin Permeated all through him and he couldn't get rid of it. He became sin for us in reality. This was his identification with us, his becoming one with men. He said to John, It's for us to fulfill righteousness. And secondly, It was an embracement of his vocation to die for us. It was the accepting from the hand of the Father that he would go to the cross and pay for the very sin he had just taken from us or connected with us. See, Jesus was a great teacher, but his teaching does nothing for us. Jesus was a great example. Go ahead and try to follow it. You'll be frustrated. Moral teacher, Righteous man, call him anything you want. But his vocation was not to come to teach. It was not to come to heal. It was to come to die. And the only way he pays for sin is to become sin itself and the sacrifice for us. Two things and we're done. To identify with sinners and thus take upon himself our sin. You know, God has a couple objectives in mind. Oswald Chambers reminds us in saving us. Number one is to, to make our past completely disappear. It's all gone. Whatever occurred before you got saved doesn't exist in the mind of God. Some of you carry guilt. Some of you carry anxiety. Some of you carry stuff. That the gospel has relieved you in the moment you got saved and yet you still carry it. Your past apart from Christ is gone. The second thing he wants to do in the gospel is make us a new creature. From here on out, he's recreating our lives into something beautiful to him. He's actually living his life in connection with ours. Living that out through our pores and our skin. And our sent. And thirdly, he is causing us to be as confident of God as God is of himself. I like that. I have no confidence in Mike. I have all confidence in God. I He wants us to be as confident of the gospel, as confident of the forgiveness, as confident of him as he is of himself. Man, this gospel is so much more far-reaching into our souls and lives than you ever can imagine. It's more than just the forgiveness of sins. That's the starting place. It's the recreation of our lives. And it's our confidence in God. And lastly, he embraced his vocation when he took the cross. I worked for 30-some years for the post office. I remember the day I walked in there and took the test. I actually was uh, working for another company, a vending company. It's kind of a funny story. I, I drove my vending company. Now, you run a vending route. You can make your days easy, and you can make them light. You can fill all the machines up one day, and the next day, man, you got hardly anything to do. You can got kind of, you know, gauge your thing. I still got to work eight hours. And I was working for a vending company on the south side. And uh, so I knew I was going to go in there for about an hour and take this post office test. And so uh, the day before, I filled up all my stack machines, all my stack machines. Everything. So I had that hour. So I pulled over this. In fact, a buddy of mine had his vending. So he had these two big servomation vending in the parking lot, and, and the post office runs right along the interstate. You can see it off King's Road right there, right? So, man, you know, Mike Favell and I are in there for one stinking hour. Just one hour, man. That's all we got to take. Guess who rides down the interstate within that hour? My two bosses. We walked out from that post office, and we saw them standing there, and it was just like, oh, God. <laughs> and all he said was, we'll see you back at the office. The long ride back to the office. Didn't get fired that day. Mike and I were pretty good workers, and he said, look, you guys are good workers. I'm not going to fire you. But don't do that again. And then he said this to me. I'm not quite sure where we're going with the illustration, but he said this to me. He said, Mike, all you had to do was ask me. I'd have let you done it. I got that job, and there I was for 30 years. That was the beginning of of where I would occupy myself. Christ, for 30 years, lived in Nazareth in the commonplace tables and chairs. But at this point, this was a turning point. This was the moment that he came to the Jordan to be baptized of John, making the conscious decision, I have lived a sinless life. I have qualified myself to pay for sin in my life. There's one other place that God says, this is my beloved son. It's at the Mount of Transfiguration. That was at the end of those three years. Right before the cross, Jesus was sinlessly perfect in the first 30 years. And then for three years, he ministered in a public realm. And at the end of that three years, he was a perfect son of God, sinless. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But his sinlessness was not enough to save us. Because the soul that sinneth, it must surely die. And he had the only payment for sin is death. He had to become sin that we might become his righteousness. And in this moment, he embraced more than just his vocation. He embraced you and you and you, all of us. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, do you understand the gospel? Do you understand these words that I'm speaking to you? It's a sin sacrifice, our sin, my sin. He died to pay for that sin. And in the veil of that moment, embraced us. Have you you come to him today? Are you saved? Are you born again? If you're born again, do you understand and see what he's done for you?